this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Today, I'm going to do a little bit of a reaction to a couple of things. Two things, to imprecise, that made me think about one thing. An article from RSM Sentinel magazine by Steve Harris. And the current economic slash political situation of the world. And how, if, should we be considering that? And I'm thinking about that in our work with our internal customers, businesses, so on and so forth. Let's jump into the intro and then we'll waffle some more about it. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplur. What's up, Pete? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. So if you're new here, hit subscribe and the bell and all of that stuff. My name's James McPherson and I'm your host for today. So, couple of things. It's not going to be the smoothest podcast. I'm a little bit hungover. I went to watch rugby yesterday. My beloved Saints getting beaten by the horrible Leicester Tigers. Good game though. Very good game. Good game. Good game. Um, so I'm on the Pepsi trying to replenish my salts and all of that. I don't feel that bad, actually, considering how much I had to drink. And yeah, I was, it was, yeah. But great day. Nothing better than a day at rugby. I enjoyed it. And don't feel as bad as I thought I was going to, which is good because I've got a lot of work to do today. So I've been thinking of late about... The I suppose I'm thinking about it because of now being a consultant and running a business, you kind of don't have a choice but to consider the wider economical, political situation. And I've always kind of kept track of it on and off. Like sometimes I'm like, ugh, had enough. And then sometimes I'm like um, quite interested and whatever. So I've always dipped in and out, never really an enthusiast of politics and economics, but always just a like just an observer, I suppose. Sorry. You know what it's like when you're hanging, just need to, need to hydrate. So we go two parts Coca-Cola, well, Pepsi, because I think that's better, and one part water so so yeah one thing that we have right now is instability right and as a business i'm cautiously aware of that instability because of how that impacts people making decisions whether they become a customer or not right whether they sign up to a contract or not so it makes me acutely aware of of that stuff um but then thinking about the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis, and how that might impact a business and an individual within a business and therefore impact safety. And just I've been pondering this for a very long time, 
I stumbled across the kind of thought thought leadership page, um, in page in the Sentinel. The Sentinel is a double RSM magazine. So if you're not a member of double RSM, I don't think you can get it. I don't know if you can buy it and not be a member, but why would you? You might as well just be a member. Um, so it's basically the copy of, so the copy, that would probably be offensive to double RSM, but it's basically the same as the IOSH magazine, except double RSM. I've obviously got, a more holistic message or, or, or vision. Um, so it tends to cover stuff from a bit more of a wider organizational risk perspective. And and that was exactly what the first page said, organizational risk, predicting the unpredictable. Uh, it's a thought leadership piece by Steve Harris. I've approached Steve. Steve's going to come on the podcast. We're going to talk some more about this. But I read this page and was... a was refreshed, if I'm honest, because I was kind of getting a bit like so fed up with safety and, and so on. And um, and it was refreshing. The language was refreshing. I've actually wrote on my notes. You can see all the scribbles here if you're watching uh, um, on YouTube. I found it quite refreshing. Um, the language, the the way it's talking um, and so on. And I'll read some bits out. Uh, it's, it's a short piece, only one page. Um, um, so nice and easy to digest. Um, but, but it made me think. It made me think about a lot of things around us being a bit more holistic with how we look at risk management, which then leads me onto a conversation or a thought around is safety right to be just safety or should it be wider but then the it brings complications and then yeah you know this thing i've been toying with for a very very long time um but let me let me start off with um the first paragraph of what steve says we can now add cost of living to a growing list of modern day challenges which include global pandemics deteriorating geopolitical landscapes, climate crisis, etc. So while so while the world accelerates away from any previous norm, how does the risk fraternity identify and manage the existing and emerging known unknowns and get ready to meet the nebulous external and external unknown unknowns that we know from experience almost certainly latently lurk in the background. Now, if you're anything like me with language and reading, you're probably going to have to read that paragraph about five times over, which is, which is what I did, um, just to get that around with your head or some of the Google words. Like, I don't think I've used the word fraternity ever in my life. Um, <laughs> but I, I like what, what he's talking about here, like unknown, external unknown unknowns and, and things that latently lurk in the background. I love that. Um, identifying and managing the existing and emerging known unknowns, you know? So what, what don't we know, but we know that we don't know it. And then what don't we know that we don't know? Right, you can get tied That's ironic, isn't it? Um, you can get yourself tied in knots with this stuff, but it, it is stuff that that we need to that we need to think about. So, when I read this first paragraph, it made me think about what I've been thinking about. In that, are we considering that say 
if your energy crisis, if your energy bill as a factory, if you're if you're a safety professional for a factory, are you very acutely aware of how much the energy bill has shot up through the roof, and that that could impact? where the resourcing and where all of this other stuff goes on. Are you monitoring the current trends in your market and whether people are buying your stuff? Are you keeping an eye on the financial performance of the organization? Have you got empathy for those those sides of the operations? And are you able to put that connection to the ripples that might flow over, I suppose, into the operational activity and therefore safety? Are you even having your conversations um, to try and work out what your unknown unknowns might be? Are you trying to engage with external bodies or external customers or even competitors um, to understand what their known unknowns are? Because their known unknowns might be your unknown unknowns. So they might go, oh, we don't actually know that. And that's better than we don't know what we don't know, right? So if you just look at the, I, th- I can't remember the number, but the, the the guide from the British Standard for Resilience, it talks about, you know, trying to work out what your unknowns are and trying to make sure that you know that you what you don't know. And it talks about engaging with wider communities. It talks about engaging with competitors to build resilience it talks about engaging with trade associations professional associations to try and talk to more people and get that sense of cognitive diversity so to speak um but there is one thing that i think we need to be able to utilize that stuff because there's a big difference between going in the meetings there's a big difference from listening and having the information having the conversations being able to understand the connections between those two and and prioritize what could affect you and what couldn't affect you or might affect you now um but you can wait off it and you know mate oh sh- that shit that's not a gray rhino anymore which is like a risk that you know about but it's mo- moving really slow uh, or gray elephant can't remember you know most things that we deal with and we say oh this is a total black swan event meaning that it was an unknown unknown freak event actually uh, more often than not not an unknown unknown nine times out of ten they're known unknowns so if we were to take covid as an example as steve touches on in this article well in that first paragraph at least if we were to take global pandemics like oh my god it's such a freak event like no it wasn't we knew about pandemics we just didn't know how easy it could come over here and how it would affect us as an organization so it was a known unknown so like we never knew how big it would be um but we knew about it so that would be and this would come from your resilience menagerie so to speak but like that would be something like um uh, i think me and jill talk about it on the podcast we might not but jill talks about it in a book a gray jellyfish because they bloom and there's loads of them that come out of nowhere what if that's the right animal it might not be the right animal but anyway something that you kind of know about but then all of a sudden it just expands into something that looks like jesus christ i didn't expect it to to escalate that kind of like that gif or that member like well this escalated quickly you know that thing like that can take a drink one sec so i think that we need to 
I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think we know we need to. I'm not sure if we have the ability to do it, know that we need to do it, and then make those connections to safety. I, I'm not sure I've seen that level of maturity from, from my profession, from us. Um, but reading stuff like this is, is refreshing to see and, and nice to see that we're pushing ourselves to a bit more of a, I think, a mature understanding of risk and resilience. Um, I then highlighted um, kind of two lines down from that first paragraph I read out um, where he says, we suggest every organization's primary tool um, should be a risk register commensurate to the hazard risk burden of their threat threat landscape. Commun I can never commensurate, commensurate, commensurate. Basically, a risk register that looks at the hazard slash risk burden of your threat landscape. Like the, the I wonder whether the language is a bit much, like a bit too, like considering the, uh, what I think is the lack of maturity of, of our profession, maybe this was a big jump because I, even I have to, even though I've highlighted this and made a note, I'm still struggling to get my head around it. But ultimately it is, are we looking at, I like, I like the, I'm not sure why I like it, but I like the hazard risk burden of the threat landscape, but it's taking me time to get my head around what that means. But I, but I like it. But the re, one of the main reasons why I highlighted this line was because a mention of a risk register, which I don't think that we are anywhere near utilising um, risk registers as well as we should do. I think my experience with risk registers has been very much just like a hazard identification process. Um, not really a holistic view on all of those hazards and risk burdens and what the threat of that is to your organisation. So understand it. So I think most of what we're trying to do in a risk assessment, right, is identify hazards and understand what interaction with that hazard could cause a negative event. And and I feel like when we talk about risk registers, it should be a more like that, but like a, a strategic view on that, holistic view on it. So I've kind of put a big note here on my page that says holistic risk management. Um, but what I really like about this article Steve pretty much gives you like a step-by-step -step process of doing a massive in-depth and, and in part at first I was like, poor Jesus, like loads of stuff on here. I wouldn't even know where to start. But like when you really break it down, you really get into it. It's really, really awesome. And he pretty much gives you a step-by-step -step process on, on holistic risk management or at least a holistic risk register. Make it clear that the use of computer vision is because that you want to learn about patterns of behavior in parts of workplace to improve the work environment. Then you will not use it as a disciplinary, disciplinary, disciplinary tool unless there are exceptional circumstances. Consult employee reps. Give them a distraction of what CV will do. CV being computer vision, as well as reassuring them. They will have great ideas about how it can be used to protect people.
They're just two of the rules in the white paper um, that Protex AI have done for building trust within the workplace when we're using uh, computer vision uh, AI. So computer vision is like the AI tech that goes onto your CCTV that Protex AI do. And one of the biggest issues that we've got is that we've just got a culture of where we think not just as a company or you like just I think everyone a majority of people have a culture where you think you're only doing this to spy on me and that's the problem when we've got predominantly a lot of these AI type uh, data building type tech innovations and that was one of the things that stood out when we spoke to Protex AI we had quite a lot of these computer vision people come to us rebounding safety being like oh can we you know can we talk about you know talking to your audience and stuff like that and one of the first things we, we would try and get out of them is like how are you using this and the second we got a hint of like you're using it to punish the worker we we don't we didn't want it it was just being used as another stick to beat the worker and the thing that stood out with Protex is that they didn't want that to happen and they've kind of put that this this kind of whole ethos into a white paper um, which is a great piece of, of information it's free of charge you can download it from the website it's called AI's role in promoting a proactive safety culture all about kind of building that data and becoming more proactive but one of the first things we need to do is increase trust that's why I really liked their kind of list of rules essentially to build trust like this is how we're going to use it and this is our framework we're going to operate within so you can find the link in the description below for that white paper it's not massive it's a it's a relatively easy read it's not horrendous like academic type paper it's an easy read it's broken down into nice chunks and um, there's a lot of valuable information in there along with a little bit of a bonus as a kind of little introduction into safety culture so if you weren't and you weren't sure as to where the word or phrase safety culture came from it's in that paper as well go to the link in the description and download your paper now um so Next paragraph, kind of, which I've kind of put down as step two, step one being that we, we realize that we need to do a better risk register to understand the hazard and risk burden and, and, and how they are a threat to our organization. Um, the next bit I highlighted was these entries are generally derived from using generic risk identification methodology founded upon the effect of the anticipated disruption on the organization's interface with their interested parties. Um, and just as a bit of context of an interested party, ISO uh, defines interested party as those who affect or those who affect or can be affected by the existence of an organization. So your stakeholders, right? People who can affect you or can be affected by you as your organization, your neighbors, neighbor principal, whatever you want to call them, shareholders, stake, not shareholders, stakeholders, interested party, so on. So you're doing a hazard identification uh, process which is going to consider a uh, kind of anticipated disruption on those inter interested parties. So risk assessment, think of it back to what we know as a risk assessment, right? What are the hazards? Who can it hurt? And how will it do that? Simple questions, really, which, which I love. I love this. So 
we're thinking now holistically as a risk register, um, as a kind of assessment of the all of the risks within the organization and how we're we're dealing with those risks and how us as an organization holistically can hurt people and how will that hurt them or impact them if you didn't want to narrow it down to safety and how can they impact us and this is where it starts to become bigger right this is where it starts to become huge in that we start to think about okay cool so Liz Truss is a prime minister now how does that potentially impact us what's the threat of that what's the opportunity of that so we might see a threat in that Liz Truss has been known to be uh, quite vocal around cutting red tape she believes how you grow an economy from what she said is cutting red tape reducing restrictions and and decreasing tax to people to go out and fucking buy shit I'm not an economist so I have no idea right but I've heard those lines from her cutting red tape and that kind of for me instantly instantly peaks up as a bit of a threat a bit of a threat there also an opportunity because there are some shit out there that is bullshit but the last time we had a red tape drive a cutting of red tape drive safety got a lot of focus from that when actually mostly mostly our legislation it's not overly terrible. It's not overly burdensome. It's more the subsequent standards, insurance demands, customer demands, you know, whatever, through this line that generate a lot of cut clutter, ass covering bullshit. So for me, just a, just the re-emergence of the conversation of cutting red tape seemed like a bit of a threat to the safety profession, right? It might then extend to you into your organization that if the conversation of red tape comes up and your your work gets rolled into that conversation of red tape the legislation that you're trying to enforce or you're trying to you know encourage people to work within in your organization if that starts getting rolled into the red tape conversation it's going to start to impact how people perceive the work that you're doing therefore if people are looking, discussing safety negatively in the media, in politics and so on, e.g. it's being referred to as red tape, it then kind of impact how people perceive and interpret and interact with the work that you do. Do we think about stuff like that? I'm not really sure that we do as a profession. Moving on to step three, um, and, and Steve probably didn't intend these to be communicated as steps, so I probably should stop calling them steps. Um, so apologies for that, Steve, if you're listening. Um, but I really felt like it was a one, two, three, four, five, six step process. Um, but ultimately, the next paragraph, not step, that I have highlighted is once I've identified a client's interested parties, I begin the process of a pestle, political, economic, social, technological, legal and environmental analysis. Once I have completed this effectively subdivided uh, and effectively subdivided the risk landscape into the six components. I perform a SWOT strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats analysis on each part. So I suppose I've gone a bit too, too I've gone over into steps three and four there. Um, 
and I haven't really touched on the interested parties. Like, are we going through and starting to understand who are the people that are interacting with us as an organization and how do they impact us? So what does that look like for safety? Um, your landlord have a big impact. Your customer can have a big impact. So for example, if your customer is demanding that you fill out loads of generic paperwork that you just think this is bullshit and we've prided ourselves for so long and not having cluttered generic paperwork, but we're in the construction sector now and our new customer wants us to generate all this stuff because that's very common in construction. So you're like, oh my God, your customer now becomes an interested party and then what they're demanding is a bit of a threat to your to your culture. We've we've done very well over the years to generate a culture and ethos around safety being decluttered and being very focused on having a positive impact on the shop floor. But now all of a sudden our customer is demanding that we send them this generic paperwork, which doesn't help. How do we deal with that situation? Well, the project we're doing with our one of our customers is very similar to that. And that we've acknowledged that some of the work that we're doing is for tendering and we can't not do it. And it might be done in the name of safety, but actually it's not safety. So how do we do that? Well, we remove it from the shop floor. We protect the shop floor from it. It's a threat to our culture. It's a threat. It's clutter to the shop floor. It's stuff the shop floor don't need to see. Therefore, it's a threat to them. So identifying your interested parties and how you're interacting with those and how their demands, their pressures, their priorities, their values are a threat or an opportunity. You might see that one of your customers, for example, you're the safety person, you find out one of the customers is um, running their safety way more aligned with how you want your company to go to. But you been struggling to get your MD on board. You want your MD to think about safety a little bit more people-centered, but he's been very like, oh, why don't people just do as they're told, just write some more rules or something like that. I don't know, right? Let's just use this, go with this hypothetical situation. Then you find out that your customer, one of your customers is a big customer of your business. Um, they're doing the same thing. You can start to leverage that interested party to help to influence your managing director. So thinking more holistically outside of your risk assessments and your safe working procedures, your ACOPs and your legislation and your knee boshes and your IOSH badge and so on and so forth, thinking outside that a little bit more like a risk manager, risk professional, as opposed to a traditional safety professional, I suppose. Um, so yeah, and then um, I kind of moved on a bit too far. Um, but but considering those, I like the pestle. I think the pestle gives us a nice little, um, just a list of things to consider, right? Your political, economical, social, technological, legal, and environmental. So how much are we thinking about tech here? Like tech is a hugely underrated opportunity for us. I don't see it as a threat too much, but if we utilize it incorrectly, I think if we use it to do more of the same, whip the worker and so on, then it probably will be. But are we considering innovations in tech? Are we seeing like, oh, our tech's a bit of a threat here? Why? Well, because we've got so many bits of tech. We've got this tech solving this problem and this tech solving this problem. We just recently um, recorded an episode with a guy called Ronan who's um, doing, who runs, is an entrepreneur running a tech company. And he identified coming from out to into safety 
that exact thing that our journey with tech has been very siloed oh we've got a problem with loan working here's a loan working tech we've got a problem with auditing here's an auditing tech and so on and so forth so he's been able to acknowledge that are we acknowledging that as a threat to our organization that we've become very cluttered and so on and so forth so i really like Again, what Steve is talking about there. So then he moves on to the SWOT. So a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats uh, analysis. My um, experience with SWOT has never been... Um, I've probably done them without knowing that they're SWOTs, if that makes sense. When I first got introduced to it not so long ago, I was like, what the hell is that? Um, and then I was kind of like, is that what I'm doing? But like thinking about strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats on each part of oh and each part of those um political of, of the pestle basically I think is what um is what what Steve is saying there. So basically we've gone through the process and we've got our kind of identified our hazard processes we've identified our interested parties and how they're in and connected with us then we start to kind of uh, process that into like the using the pestle those six kind of landscapes I suppose and then from there we're starting to think about each one of those what is the strength and the weaknesses of those so the strength of um, the current economic position is x and then the weaknesses is x for example so we might say um, the current British environment that we're within politically and economically is very unstable at the moment and then with the queen passing the weakness is probably that there's more instability there there's there's a, a nation in mourning which whether you're a royalist or not i think it does have an impact it does have um a both a both a physical is that the right word physical impact because like you, you know like people will have days off and so on and then some people won't but then you've got like a a social impact as well and that it is a bit weird it's more instability it's it it's a it, even again if you even if you're not a royalist i think it was weird like i'm not a royalist i'm not really massively into it but it was weird i felt this weird like instability thing and the, the queen had been this massive sense of stability through just years of instability right all of these different prime ministers we had that one thing but then you might see a strength of it in that prince charles has always sorry king charles has always been a big advocate for climate change and and doing being having better businesses and, and you know more moral and ethical businesses and so on and so forth now on your opinion on rules that, that might vary but you might see that as a strength. So we can start to, I think, just think a little bit more holistically. And I think where safety falls down is we think about this stuff as a spreadsheet, as a document. Um, and, and I think in part, it probably does become that. But in our heads, we can just start to watch the news and think, hmm, how does that how does that interact with my organization? How does that interact with safety? What are the ripples of that? And does it impact the operation? And does that mean I'm going to struggle to get this innovation across the board? Or does that mean that 
people aren't going to be focused when they're swinging off the top of a tower or whatever. Um, so then Steve continues on. Another paragraph I said I highlighted here is he combines the um, business impact analysis with a risk assessment in which he exam examines the risk of loss of critical factors, which he's criteriaed, uh, criteriaed, categorized as staff, systems, utilities, and premises. So basically now running a risk assessment on the risk of loss of those critical factors. So we've lost staff, we've lost systems, we've lost utilities, and we've lost um, premises. Um, now, there's one thing I've said many, many times um, with customers in previous jobs and so on and so forth. Like, we just, particularly in safety, but like, we just do like one risk assessment at one very specific defined point in the process when the majority of decisions have already been made. And there's not really much left that we can we can change. I, I actually do think that most of our risk assessments that we do are null and void before we've even started them, if I'm brutally, brutally honest. And interestingly, when you look at the practices and pitfalls paper um, done by the HSC Science Division, one of the pitfalls that they raised was doing risk assessments when decisions have already been made. Now, I'm not saying that we just take that risk assessment, we put it in a different process. I think that that would be typical safety and how we bloody respond to everything. Um, I'm thinking about holistically, holistically managing risk, right? So the board making a decision and asking the question like, how does that impact operations? How does that impact people? Does that have ripples into other parts of the organization? Does that start to impact safety? And so on and so forth. Um, everything is interconnected. So to be able to do a lot of this stuff, I think that Steve is talking about, that I'm talking about, is we, we need to get better at understanding like critical and systems thinking is really critically analyzing things and trying to think about the interconnections between all of those things and how one thing can have ripple effects onto the next thing. One of the reasons why he said that he does um, what he does, he said, I do this so that my client's senior leadership can use the data to make informed decisions on whether to treat, tolerate, transfer, or terminate the risk. I really like that treat, tolerate, transfer, or terminate the risk. I, I kind of like that. I think that's like a more mature version of um, the hierarchy of control. Um, do, can we just treat it so that uh, we we still got it, but it just kind of um, it just kind of reduces the risk a little bit? Um, do we leave it as is and we just tolerate it? Um, can we transfer the risk over to someone else or somewhere else or something else? Um, or do we need to put some resources into this to completely uh, terminate it? But what I really like about this, what I really, really like about this is I do this so my client's senior leadership can use the data to make informed decisions informed decisions like jesus christ if i was a team leader as a team cheerleader i mean i would have some pom-poms informed decisions like we need to do 
better at making more informed decisions. And for me, this is where tech lives. This is where tech can really help us, is making better informed decisions. Steve moves on then to another another uh, paragraph I've highlighted, a big one this time. I'll read it out. Resilience can be built through solid business continuing continuity management practices. This is because without the hazards from a pestle being fed into a SWOT and captured in a register that in integrates your unique risk profile, appetite versus capacity versus requirement, your business impact analysis, the, the associated risk management, and then all important resource allocation can only ever be thought of as subjective guesswork. It's about it's about being more critical in what we're doing as a process. It's to really understand what our risks are and really dynamically as an organization, constantly going through this process of really understanding the impact of every potential tweak and change. And it's exhausting, right? It sounds exhausting. It's exhausting, hungover, trying to read my notes and Steve's very mature um, writing on here. Um, but ultimately, it is exhausting, but as an organization, would we not prefer to do that than just be doing the subjective guesswork or just making decisions and hoping it's all right and completely discounting the future? This is about getting yourself informed about as many of the possible futures um, there are, as many of the unknowns there are, understanding what are the unknowns and understanding what don't we know and making better data uh, informed, risk informed decisions. It's, it's a really holistic approach that Steve is talking about here, and I, I love it. It's epically thorough, this process. It's phenomenally thorough. Um, when I was working for a trade association, I had a safety, I went over to uh, an event in, I think it might have been Ireland, actually. And we, we were talking with a load of associations, um, and we were talking about mental health, I think, and stress. We're talking about loads of stuff, like freaking beanbags and apps and shit. We try and get more first aiders and stuff. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Do we think the board, when they uh, agree a job, when they sell a job, when they cut something here, does a board do a risk assessment on the impact of that on the shop floor? I said, what? I, I said, do we risk assess our decisions as an organization from the perspective of the people on the shop floor because i think we will financially i'm not really sure when we make a decision on the on the shop floor that we i think we think we do but i'm not really sure that we know enough as a leadership board in my experience the majority of boards i come across are so far removed from the shop floor I don't truly think they can do a risk assessment um, and really understand the impact of the shop floor from their decisions. So moving on, and just to finish this off uh, on the last power a couple of paragraphs ultimately by adding this type of meaningful risk perspective to a strategy and objective which in turn informs a vision and a mission a company can ensure interested parties have greater confidence which will which will logically have a positive impact on market share it, it's it's i mean I, i'm not really sure how 
much more we can say about boards just making informed decisions, ones that are holistic. Um, but I just really love what Steve's talking about here is, is strategically as an organization, really understanding and thinking critically about our risk and threats. You know, what, who are we interacting with? What do they do? What do they believe in? What don't we know? And how does that interact with other things? And how does that interact with us? And using that to make our decisions. And, and I don't think I ever truly, really understood this well enough until running my own business um, and, and actually doing this myself and now looking back on it and thinking about it for a long time. And I will continue to think about this. I, I don't think I'm anywhere near um, getting to where I want to get with this and working with clients, getting to this. And I think it's a step-by-step process. I don't think overnight we need to package this up and sell it. But I do think what Steve's talking through here in this process is just a, a beautiful place to start at least. Um He's pretty much giving you the process of what he would do with you as a client. Um, and, and it's phenomenally thorough. Um, I really, really enjoy it. And I find it really refreshing to be reading this stuff. Um, it finishes with, um, in summary, an effective risk professional is an evidence-based influencer who coordinates a quorum of discipline discipline experts with internal and external sources to derive an accurate risk-related picture which helps inform decision-making. However, regardless of, uh, of their previous endeavours, every risk professional needs to be bringing their A-game to today's world. I really love that description of us as a profession. Um, effective risk professional is an evidence-based influencer an evidence-based influencer. I really love that. And I'd challenge all of us to challenge ourselves on how evidence-based actually are we. I really like the three C's, which I've forgotten in this moment. Let me Google them whilst I'm waffling. Um, the three C's in the safety clutter paper. And I know in the safety clutter paper, we're talking about... Um, we're talking about safety paperwork, safety management systems. But I use this um, all the time, this, this kind of 3C process to really um, test what we're doing is, I don't know, gonna, gonna deliver some positive values. It's really hard to be hung over and type and record a podcast at the same time transcript by safety color do these three c's is a great framework come on peeps three c's oh here we go contribution is the first one um so what is this contributing um to the organization so if we're talking about safety what does this contribute to safety next one is confidence um what confidence do we have that that is going to do what we think it's going to do? And they use two things there. So is the confidence based on um, evidence. So we've got evidence that, that this will work. So we've got scientific evidence or we've got historical evidence. So we've done it before and we've seen that it work. 
And if we don't have that, do we have belief? We believe it's going to work. So in the absence of evidence, we might have a belief. I also think belief is very important if we were to think back to like the philosophical um, work behind knowledge. It's a, it's a, the belief is a big part of that. So I do think belief um, for me is not one or the other. If it's not evidence-based, it doesn't matter if we believe it. I do think we have to believe it at the same time. Um, again, David and the rest of the team doing the paper might um, have not intended that to be interpreted like that or or, or whatever. So uh, sorry if I've misrepresented that. I've never, never read that they believe it is one or the other um, is what I'm trying to say poorly. Um, but I'm just saying in my head, I think I made, I had that conversation with myself, if that makes sense. Um, and then finally, consensus. Um, so the people that we're doing this with, what's the consensus in the room? So how many times are you talking to the shop floor when you make a decision? Um, I think a lot of the time we talk about consultation uh, from a safety point of view, but we don't really do it. The majority of consultation is is absolute dog shite. Um, but consensus is a huge part of delivering work that's impactful, I think. Um, so having a consensus, um, having confidence and understanding that work's contribution, I think is phenomenally important. And I think those are really three good tests on how to be an evidence-based influencer. Um why do I like the word influencer? Well, because I'm a YouTuber. No, not really. Um, because I think the word control is misleading. I think we've used the word control and safety for a very long time. It makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't think we ever do have control. We, all, all we can do is try to influence people on the shop floor to make um, the decision we want them to make. So I think if we to think of ourselves as influencers, it positions us better to be able to do our job better because we understand that we don't have control, but what we can do is influence. And sometimes we can do that influence really strong by actually making it physically impossible to press the wrong button. And sometimes that influence might be subtle and more often than not, it's, it's probably a bit of both um, throughout the process. But anyway, that's my brain for the, like the last couple of months. And um, it's kind of the hungover version of my brain. So this is probably been the worst podcast I've ever made. Um, but that was what I've been thinking about for a long time. Kind of, this is a kind of a react to the current situation and how that's made me think about how I'm considering that as a threat or an opportunity to my organization, but also the work that I'm doing with my customers. You know, if I'm going to ask my customer to do X and invest in X, I've got to understand that they're probably skinned right now because they're paying their bills, right? Um, or they're probably nervous on what what is Liz, Tr Liz Trust going to bring? You know, oh, we've only got this prime minister for two years. Ugh, that's not a lot of stability there. There's a lot going on. And I do think that particularly with a bigger organization, that makes them very nervous. And I think safety professionals or risk professionals with evidence-based influencers could do a better job at considering all of those factors and what that means to your organization. Hopefully you found this useful. If you'd like some support with this stuff, I'd recommend you read the article. I recommend you connect with Steve. Um, I may be going to ask him some more. Um, 
or you can also go to riskfluentltd.com or you can email me james at riskfluentltd.com and we would more we would be more than happy to have a chat with you about this stuff and um, i guarantee i won't be hung over when we have that conversation thanks for listening i'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.